you have a Bible, grab it. Get with me to Exodus, the end of Exodus chapter 20, uh, the end of Exodus 20. If you don't have a Bible, please reach into a a chair around you and get one in front of you. Uh, It's so important every week that you have the Word of God, but it's especially important this week because I'm going to be covering some ground here today, and I want you to stay right with me uh, wherever we're going. And so um, as, as you come to the end of Exodus 20, and, and even if you would just right now in your Bible, look at some of the headings that come. You're going to see a heading, laws about altars, Exodus chapter 21, laws about slaves, laws about restitution. Like if you just go through these, these, these pages here, we're coming to a section in our Bible where we get an extended, uh, an extended list of God giving his people laws, or, or as it says at the beginning of Exodus 21, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Now, uh, no, no show of hands, but, but I, I'm willing to bet that some of us in the room in our daily Bible reading have maybe come to a section like this and just gone, whoop. Now, now I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but, but I'm wondering if we've come to sections in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you just have kind of, you know, turned, quietly turned the pages. And, and the reason is because as, as, as we come to these lists of laws like that, you're like, what in the world? And this is really what, this is in our passage today. What in the world does not boiling a goat in its mother's milk have to do with following Jesus today, right? Or, or maybe if you're a little more heavy conscience, like you won't skip it. You'll actually read the words, but the reading of the words never engages your heart. You're just going through the motions of reading the words. Now, I just want to tell you why I want to encourage us that when we're studying the book of Exodus on our own, that we don't stop at Exodus 20. And I want to tell you why that as a church, when we preach through books of the Bible, we don't just stop at Exodus 20. Because honestly, it's really tempting for people and even for churches to just stop at Exodus 20 and say, hey, we're launching into a brand new series today. But if you remember, we've said all along, the book of Exodus is really clearly broken into two distinct parts. The first half of the book is all about God's goodness to deliver his people out of their bondage of their slavery in Egypt. And the second half of the book is all about how now God desires to dwell with them as his people as they worship him. So what God is doing in the very detailed giving of the law, and as we'll see next week, in the very detailed instructions on building a tabernacle, and as we see in the week after that, the very detailed instructions on the priesthood, God is so good. He is such a good dad. He is literally spelling out for them, this is what it looks like for us to live in a covenant relationship. These are the laws that are on my heart that you are to follow. Now, so as we walk through these sections today, I want us to understand that it's so good for us that if God in his wisdom has preserved for us his perfect word of God, we believe here that all the word is breathed out by God. Amen? And so God in his wisdom has preserved for us long sections of the law that he desires for us to study. Now, the, the, 
Some of you are nervous because you're like, oh, no, I've seen sermons like this go really bad really fast, right? And why you're nervous is because you're nervous as gospel people, people who believe that we are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, period, right? Let me say up front, none of us are saved by law-keeping. The reason is none of us are able to keep the law, We're gathered here today as Jesus people, looking to him as the perfect law keeper who has kept the law on our behalf and has gone to the cross to forgive us of our sins. Now I'm getting ahead of myself though, okay? And so there's no reason to be nervous, but why we study sections like this are for a couple reasons. The Apostle Paul himself, as he's writing like the crown jewel on the gospel in the book of Romans, He talks about the fact that without the law, we don't know what sin is. A right teaching of the law doesn't take the spotlight off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A right teaching of the law keeps the spotlight centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we walk through this, we get to be reminded of the holiness of our God. That he is holy, holy, holy. That he calls his people to be holy, holy, holy. None of us, because of sin, have been able to do that. But we look to the holy, holy, holy Jesus on our behalf. But the second reason we study these sections is because, and this is kind of the big idea of our day today, the law of God shows us the heart of God. Now, I want, you to rem- I want you to really camp out on that phrase because I'm going to keep coming back to that phrase again and again and again throughout our day. I'm going to walk us through eight characteristics of God's heart today in these different sections of God unpacking the law for his people. And what we're going to find in these sections, if we, if, if we don't get sidetracked or bogged down in some of the minutia of it, we are going to clearly see here the heart of God for his people as he's sending them towards a promised land. And so uh, today is a little bit different for us. If you're used to calling Redeemer home, you're, you're typically used to me camping out in a paragraph or camping out in a chapter and really unpacking that. I'm going to stay at about 20,000 feet here today and make my way through a couple different chapters for us to really pull out what is the heart of God that's driving these laws that he is giving us. Now, the good news for you is because I'm staying at 20,000 feet, I'm going to leave a lot of meat on the bone here today for you guys to study on your own this week and in your discipleship groups. I expect for there to be a lot of good conversation and a lot of good discussion around these things this week. But the law of God shows us the heart of God. I want to look at eight characteristics of God's heart. I want to quickly pray and let's get right into it. Father, we take a deep breath before you because Lord, we are needy for you. As we walk through this, we're going to be confronted with the fact that Lord, we have missed the mark. We can never keep these things And yet, Lord, we don't walk out of here despairing because you have brought good news that your son has kept them on our behalf. And so would you remember, would we we study all this with the gospel right at the forefront, right in the center of the spotlight today? And Lord, would you show us more of your heart as we do? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me move quick. First, God's heart is to atone 
for sin. The first characteristic of the heart of God I want us to see here from this section on the law in the book of Exodus is God's heart is to atone for sin. Where do I find that? Look, at, look with me, end of Exodus 20, beginning in verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. I've just read words about the, the laws as it pertains to building altars. And I'm making the point here that God's heart is to atone for sin. Now, I, I want us to understand the connection of what's just happened here in Exodus 20. The last two weeks, we preached through the beginning of Exodus 20 on the Ten Commandments. God is laying out these commandments for his people, his heart of what it looks like for them to love God and love people with their life. Look at what he does right after giving these commandments. He introduces the sacrificial system, which tells them, Though I've just given you these commandments, I've now made a way for your sin to be atoned for because you won't be able to keep these commandments. You see in Exodus 20, both the truth and the justice of God declared in the Ten Commandments and the grace and the mercy of God declared in the fact that with the law, he introduces the sacrificial system of which they can come and atone for their sin, how their sin can be paid for. Because sin must be paid for. And all through the rest of the book of Exodus, all through the rest of the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system in place. We see the burnt offerings that are brought to the altar to atone for the sin of the people. And all of this about the sacrificial system points to the full and final sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who came once and for all to pay the penalty for our sin. How thankful for us to be sitting here on the other side of saving faith and the full and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How thankful are we that every day you don't find me dragging a sheep behind me to make another sacrifice for yelling at another person at a crosswalk, but that the, but that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the full and final sacrifice atoning power to forgive us for our sins amen but you see the heart of God here not only in the New Testament to atone you see it right here in Exodus chapter 20 that right after the giving of the commands he gives the instruction for the altars for the breaking of the commands to be atoned for first John 2 2 tells us this he is the propitiation for our sins Jesus or another way to say that is he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen? So we gather here today as people looking to the full and final sacrifice of Jesus to atone for our sins. But you see God's heart for atonement right here in Exodus 20. Now, the second characteristic of God's heart we're going to find as we continue to make our way is this. God's heart is to protect the poor and the vulnerable. 
God's heart is to protect the poor and the vulnerable. Now, let, let me read for us these laws about slaves at the beginning of Exodus 21, and then let me make my defense of why I've worded this point like this. It says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives if and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. Now, we read a section like this, and we go, whoa, that's, what's going on? And it's sections like this in our Bible that God actually takes a lot of heat for from those who don't know him because, because you can read this and you go, what in the world is God doing legislating slavery? Now, something that's so important to understand this section of our Bible and to understand all of our Bible is that for us sitting here, it's nearly impossible, or it's very difficult, I should say, for us to read a section like this and not interpret Exodus 21 through the lenses of what we know of, uh, of the atrocity and evil of slavery in our nation's history and the atrocity and evil of slavery around the world today. And so we, we can interpret a passage like this through the evils of what we have known in our context. One thing that's important for us to understand is that as the Lord is sending his people to a promised land, he understands that within the community there will be people who become so poor they, they must enter into an indentured servitude or they will, be, they will become people who will become so indebted they will need to enter into an indentured servitude. And so the, the, when, when it talks about the servants or the slaves here, um, it, it's such a different context from, that, from the evils in which our country has walked through and of which much of the world is walking through right now. But it's a reality that there will be people who become so poor, so needy, so indebted that they will need to go to work for other people. And now I want us to understand what the Lord is doing here with laws like this for his people. He's providing a direction of when they are to go free. He's providing direction of how families are to stay together. The Lord, in giving laws like this, is going before them to look out for those who will find themselves poor and vulnerable in his covenant community. Because the heart of the Lord, from cover to cover in this book, is to watch out for the poor, and for the vulnerable. And now one of the blessings for us today for application is as we see the heart of God in these areas, to ask us, are our hearts imaging the creator? Are our hearts imaging God the way we need to? Does my heart go out for the poor and vulnerable? Am I looking to provide uh, 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 of avenues of caring for and of seeing these people um, uh, redeemed and bought out of their plight? Because this is what you see here on the heart of God. So God's law shows us his heart, God's hearts to atone for sin, 
God's heart is to protect the poor and vulnerable. The third characteristic of God's heart is this. God's heart is to protect his image bearers. Now, let let me read some more uh, laws listed here that for our contemporary hearing land really heavy. But let's understand what God's doing with these. Exodus 21 verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which you may flee. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take from him, uh, from, uh, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And on and on this section goes, uh, spelling out how people are to be punished for inflicting violence on another human being or how they are to be punished for inflicting death on another human being. And again, we can, you know, wake up in the morning, pour our cup of coffee, sit down, open our Bible reading plan and go, we're in Exodus chapter 21 today. You can read that and you can go, oh, that seems heavy. But what is God doing here? As he's brought his people out, we've seen the loving hand of God bringing his people out of their bondage. As he has them in the land between, so to speak, not where they once were in Egypt and not where they're going to be in the promised land. And as he's spelling out for them, when you get where you're going, people I have made in my image matter. And there are, the Lord is saying, there is, I wield a just hand for people who will not respect, will not honor those that I have made in my image. God's heart here is to protect his image bearers. And God's heart is still to protect his image bearers. Who is the creator? It's an easy answer. Who is it? It's God. God is the only one who is sovereign and powerful to give life. And the Bible's clear teaching is God is the only one who determines when a life is taken. That is not within the realm of the authority that God has given to humans. And God has some steep, steep consequences for those who do not protect image bearers. God's call for us, church, is that we would image his heart by having this same honor and same reverence for those that have been made by God. Do, does our heart match God's heart to protect those he's made in his image? Does our, does our heart go out To protect the unborn image bearers in mother's wombs? Does our heart go out to protect the life of every tribe and every tongue and every nation? Does our heart go out to live in such a way that we want to see people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ so that they will know eternal life with the Lord forever? The heart of the Lord is to protect his image bearers. But now look at this fourth characteristic we see in the detailed giving of the law, and it's this. God's heart is to restore. 
If you look in your Bible in Exodus chapter 21, it begins a long section about laws, of, uh, laws about restitution. It says, when a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or uh, if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. And on and on this section goes of laws of restitution. God again providing clear direction and detailed direction to go, in this land I am sending you, and as my covenant people, when you or when one of yours has inflicted a wrong on another, love motivates you to make that wrong right. Don't we know this very simply, that that's what love does? Because how do you feel when you let someone borrow something, that someone returns the borrowed thing to your home or to your garage, you go out to use borrowed thing and borrowed thing no longer works. How do you feel in that moment? There's something foundational in which we know that love compels us to restore Love compels us to make that which was taken or that which was wrong right. Our God is a God who's in a beautiful business of restoration, is he not? We know about the character of God, that he has this beautiful way of taking that which is wrong and making it right. All of us in this room love a good story of restoration. We love it in the movies we watch. We love it in the reality TV we watch. Of taking something that has been dented, broken, whatever, and seeing it made right again. Seeing it restored. And God is providing laws for his people of what it looks like for them to restore when, some, when they or something of theirs has taken from someone else. That's what love compels them to. So God's heart is to restore. God's law shows us God's heart. God's heart is to restore. Now this fifth characteristic of the heart of God, you might at first hearing, especially in our day, thinks a bit controversial. So let me give you the point. God's heart is for justice. Now what's controversial about that? If you look in your Bible, look at the heading over chapter 22, verse 16. What in your Bible does that heading say? Laws about, laws about what? What's it say, church? Laws about social justice. Now, there's a charge term in our day, is there not? Some of you are like, uh-oh. If I wasn't nervous before, I'm nervous now. Can I just look and say something, church? Stay out of the fray of all of this. Justice is God's idea. What does God say justice is? Don't be afraid of what God says justice is. 
what is on the heart of God of where he wants to see justice enacted and how do we image that? How do we mirror that as his people? And so let me just pull out a couple things from this section. Look at what it says in chapter 22, verse 21 on justice. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you, uh, any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his covering and it is his cloak for his body and what else shall he sleep and if he cries to me I will hear for I am compassionate and so the Lord's heart is for justice and look at a couple of the 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 people he describes that he is compassionate towards he has justice for the sojourner the refugee the widow the fatherless the poor the Lord's heart is for justice for these people. The Lord says, if you will not do these things, here's swift punishment. The Lord says, if, if, if you will not do these things, I will hear the cry of the poor because I am compassionate. And so we, as God's people, church, as his covenant community, we seek to live out and mirror what is his heart for justice in this world. Amen? We don't need to be worried about it. We don't need to wonder, like, how is this being perceived? We want justice the way God defines justice. Amen? Come on, you with me? Amen? So we stay out of the fray and we let God's word define what's on his heart for justice. God's law shows us God's heart. God's heart is for justice. The sixth characteristic God's heart is for worship. Is God's heart for the worship of his name? Yes, it is. You see in Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 10, laws about the Sabbath and laws about festivals. Let me start with Sabbath laws. Verse, verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather it in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, and, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. He then goes on to festivals. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. The Lord says, this is a festival every year. And the festival of unleavened bread is you are to remember and you are to worship that I delivered you out of your bondage in Egypt. Because, we, listen to me now, remembering how God has delivered us leads us to worship, does it not? 
Remembering what the Lord has done leads us to worship. But he provides another feast. Verse 16, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the, uh, from the field the fruit of your labor. He says there's these, also these festivals when, when the first fruits spring up, you bring the first and the best, as verse 19 is going to say, the best of the first fruits of your harvest. You bring those before the Lord and you thank him. Now, we don't live in an agrarian society. We live in a Costco society. My, yesterday, my wife drove up to Costco, filled up a cart, hit Aldi on the way home, backs the van up to the back door, and we just unload the food into our kitchen. Imagine, though, we lived in a day where literally you would watch your field and be like, please, Lord, please, Lord. And imagine the thankfulness that would fill your heart when another year, when all the fruit started fruiting, and you had food for your family again. Thankfulness leads to worship. And the Lord was building into the rhythm of their calendar times to say, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. So can I encourage you to build a rhythm into your harvesting? As you're packing your pantry after another trip to Kroger, Meyer, Costco, whatever, would you just say, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. This is what God's doing. He's building into his community rhythms of worship. Six in one. A rhythm of worship through work in six. A rhythm of worship through rest in one. A rhythm of worship through festivals throughout the year where you could thank him for what he's done in the past and you could thank him for his provision in the present. The Lord's heart is for worship. We say around here that Worship is the response of praise and adoration to God because of who God is. And in every area of our life, he is worthy of our worship, is he not? And so we just did the 20,000 fly of all of these sections of laws, of rules that God gives to his people as they're headed towards the promised land. There's, there's, two, other, there's two other characteristics we see now before I close today. One of them is seen in what God says here, and one of, us, one of them is seen in what God shows here. But look at what God says as Exodus 23 comes to a close. Look what he says to his people. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Be careful, pay, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So, so look at what God says here. I'm going to send an angel before you. You're going to this land I've set aside for you, but an angel's going before you. Okay, God sends an angel before. Verse 22. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, 
And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will overthrow and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not. Now look at. Look at the, well, let me just read this and we'll talk about it. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out for you until you have increased and possessed the land. Here's the point I want to make. Here's what we see about the heart of God. Seventh is this. God's heart is to shepherd. Now, where do I get that from there? A shepherd leads A shepherd provides and a shepherd protects. And one of the biggest uh, illustrations or pictures that the Bible talks about when it talks about God is that the, the Lord is our, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You see here, the Lord says, I will lead you. I'm literally going to send an angel who bears my name before you. You see him say, I will provide for you. I will will bless your bread and your water. I will protect you. Your enemies will become my enemies. Your adversaries will become my adversaries. And he says, I'll send these hornets before you and they'll drive them out. Can you imagine? The Lord is leading, is providing, is protecting That same shepherd is the shepherd of your soul here today. Who is skillfully leading, providing, and protecting. And when I say skillfully, I want to highlight again the way the Lord says they're going to inhabit the land. If I was leading this, we would have gone in and one day wiped them out and the whole land would have been ours. And the Lord says, I'm not going to do it like that. You're going to slowly overtake the land. Why? So the wild beasts don't just come back in and overtake it. Why? So that the, the, the ground is still worked. The Lord is skillful in his shepherding. If you're sitting in here today and you're like, God, shepherd quicker. He knows what he's doing. He knows the pace to go. He knows the place he's taking you. He knows how he has to protect you. He knows when to prod you forward and he knows when to use the staff and pull you back. Will we entrust ourselves into the hands of a good shepherd today? Because he knows what he's doing. And then finally, the eighth of these character, characteristics of the heart of God. Let me just give it to you. It's this. God's heart is to reveal his glory. God's heart is to reveal his glory. At the beginning of Exodus 24, the Lord tells Moses to come up. And so Moses goes back and relays all these rules that the Lord has given to the people. And then Moses and a few of the leaders, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders, they, they begin to ascend to meet with the Lord. And pick it up with me in Exodus 24, verse 9. It says, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu 
and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And now don't, don't read too quickly verse 10. Let verse 10 sit a bit. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Can I just tell you that little phrase at the end, all week, has just been ministering to my soul? Because it's made me long for the day when we will behold the perfect presence of God and eat and drink in his presence. Come on. It's made me long for that day. Goes on to describe the glory of this moment. Verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Remember, delivered to dwell. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the leaders have gone up. It appears the best I can read. Moses has gone up more. All of the other people, let's go to this picture here. No picture does this justice, but all the rest of the people are, are down in the lowlands or down in, you know, encamped around the mountain, and you have this pillar of fire. Remember, they have been led by a pillar of fire. Now you have this flame presence on the top of this mountain. And it's the glory of the Lord in the presence of his people. From the Garden of Eden to the garden in the new city one day, God has been interested in his glory dwelling among his people. Do you know why we're here today? We are here to give God glory. Do you know why you will get up tomorrow? To give God glory. From the very beginning of this church, we have begged God to make this a place where he has brought glory. The beginning of our mission statement is what it is on purpose, to glorify God. Do you know what the primary mission of the church is? Primary. We always want to answer it's about saving people or growing people. No, the primary mission of the church is doxological. It's to bring God glory. The saving of the lost and the growing of the saints is to lead to that glorifying aim. Amen? We are here for his glory. When we sing his praises, we're singing of his glory. You know what we don't need every week? 
just a really talented band who plays good songs. Do you know what we do need? Worship that leads us to glorify God. Do you know what we don't need? Cool inspirational talks every week. Do you know what we do need? The heralding of the word that leads us to the glory of God. Do you know what we do? I could go on and on. Get up tomorrow to the glory of God. Go home and eat lunch today to the glory of God. Tuck your kids into bed tonight to the glory of God. Get up and punch a clock tomorrow, even if you can't stand the clock you're punching right now, to the glory of God. It's all for his glory. And he longs to manifest his glory in his presence. Now, last thing I'll say, we can read this and go, man, wouldn't you have loved to have been there at the mountain when the fire came down? And I would. But don't miss the great reality that we sit in. They got to see the presence of the Lord and its glory and a flame on the top of a mountain. We, once we believe in Jesus Christ, get the presence of God by his spirit dwelling right inside of us. So we look back on the people at the mountain and we're like, man, I would have loved to have been there. And in heaven one day, those people are going to be like, what? I would have loved to live when you lived. The very spirit of God indwelling you. How great is our God. Amen. Church, if you would stand with me. I'm sending us out of here today. And as I do, I just want to send you. and I want to call you to this aspect of the glory of God. Whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do. Do it all for the glory of God this week. Amen. Amen. We'll see you right back here next Sunday. You are loved and you are sent.